Welcome to the Philip K. Dick Book Club. In this episode, we will be, be, be continuing our look at Dick's 1970 novel, A Maze of Death. In the first part of this series, we met all our major characters. There's a lot of them, 15 or 14 or 15 char uh, characters, as they all have arrived at the planet Del Mako, having sought out a new job for themselves. Um, when they get there, they're frustrated by the fact that they cannot access the satellite that is supposed to give them their mission there, uh, which, of course, completely undermines their ambition to find a meaning, a meaningful work in their life. I also talked about how this book has a lot of parallels with Galactic Pod here, at least thematically, although, as I reveal, it's... Its conclusions are very, very different than those of Galactic Pod Healer. It's almost like the dark, the, the bizarro world Galactic Pod Healer in a lot of ways. Thematically the same, but coming to radically different conclusions. And I also talked about the theology in the novel, a theology based on the idea that there is a, a God in three or four parts, depending on how you, you kind of measure them. There's the there's kind of the God that creates the universe and creates things called the manufacturer. There's the God that sustains things called the intercessor. And then there's the God that will help people from time to time as individuals called the walker on earth. There's also kind of the destroyer force, a kind of a fourth avatar of God, if you will, called the form destroyer or the destroyer of forms. Uh, this is a theology uh, that is grounded in reality in the context of the novel. It's something that's been proven scientifically and verified um, through through science. And so virtually everyone believes in this 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 belief, this this tradition. Um, Dick claims that he he invented this theology with with a friend while just having a conversation. But in fact, it seems that there's a lot of parallels between this theology and that of like Hinduism, which has the same pattern of a kind of a destroyer god or sustainer god and a, and a just a creator sustainer and destroyer god so i don't know to what degree it is fully original but it claims that that he was trying to create a theology grounded in the presumption that god exists so in this episode we'll be looking at chapters five six seven and eight of a maze of death and we'll see how our characters deal with the fact that they don't know why they're on this planet delmach o and and as they come to terms with that, they also come to terms with the fact that they're not really friends with one another. They have a lot of built up resentment and hostility that needs to to be worked out often in not the, not the most productive ways. So as chapter four opens, the group has just learned that the satellite that they're supposed to get their mission from uh, malfunctions and they need to make a decision on what to do. You know, the first idea is that they should just leave, but this is almost impossible because everyone came by Noser, which are basically one-way emigration ships. Even if they pulled together their their fuel, they're not really designed for navigation for outside of one destination. So leaving is not really a problem. Uh, 
you know, the other option is just to kind of work and repair the satellite. That's the opinion of the electrician, Glenn Belsnor. However, he has a lot of doubts because he's beginning to think that this is all a plot, that they're being experimented on by the, the government. And there's various theories about that. Now, there's a bit of geopolitics that, that we learn about in this part of the novel as well, such as that most people have left Earth. It's, it's kind of like uh, do androids dream of electric sheep in that way. Uh, most people left Earth, and the people left behind on Earth are essentially, they're called, I think, ostriches, and they're basically the mental patients left behind. So they even start to play with the idea that maybe they're just mental patients, and they were all brought to Delmach O as an experiment. This will be something played with a bit later on, but more and more, this theory that they're being played with by the government in some way is is explored, and that's certainly what Belsnor thinks. Um, so if they can't fix the... Well, one way, to, one way to fix a satellite might be prayer, right? God really exists in this world. He answers prayers. He, you know, depending on what you need, you'll ask different avatars of God. So if you need help as an individual, you might ask the walker on earth. If you need something repaired or created, you'll talk to, or if you need something made, you'll talk to the manufacturer. If you need something fixed, you'll talk to the intercessor. I guess if you need something destroyed, you'll call it the form destroyer, but that's not what they're after. They're after some kind of prayer. So they talk about a, some kind of prayer being a solution and they decide that uh, maybe it should be Ben Tallchief who writes the prayer because he had the most successful prayer recently. His, he got here through a prayer. So there's a lot of theology worked out in this part of the novel about just how the prayer works and who you have to pray to and how you have to pray to different forces depending on what you want. So basically they say Ben has to write the prayer and he goes off and he's he was one of the recent arrivals, right? He arrived in chapter two, just like Seth Morley and his wife arrived in chapter four. So uh, they go off together and Ben Tallchief starts drinking. Again, that's kind of a pattern he keeps running into is his alcoholism. And he's drinking while talking to Seth Morley about the situation they're in. He's trying to get Seth Morley to help him unpack his noser and put into his building. Um, and he realized, he, or Ben Tallchief begins to realize that there's a lot of tension and, and hostility in the group itself. He says, or he thinks to himself, the breakdown of the transmitter had ensnared the attention of every one of them, and justly so. Why aren't I in there, he asked himself, function as part of the group. But the group didn't function as a group anyhow. It was always a finite number of self-oriented individuals squalling with one another. With such a Bunch, he felt he had no roots, no common source. He felt nomadic and in need of exercise. Right now, something called to him. He had called, it had called him from the briefing room and back to his living quarters. And now it sent him trudging through the dark, searching for his noser. So that's uh, his anxiety about the situation they're in, that they're basically all disparate individuals. They're not going to be able to function as a group. And again, this is the dark side of Galactic Pot Healer. The conclusion of the Galactic Pot Healer was. People collectively can do great things and can find new meaning in the gestalt, right? Here, it's impossible because there is no gestalt. There's just these atomized individuals in conflict with one another. Um, so he just starts unpacking after Seth Morley sort of says, oh, I'll help you later, and leaves him alone. And while he's doing this, a shape comes into the room, and he sees a tube. And he thinks about the Forms Destroyer as he dies. And so it all dies from his point of view. So he doesn't actually see what kills him. He just sort of dies. And, and more or less the chapter, the chapter ends. There's a little bit of, I think there's a little bit about Seth Morley learning about the death of, of Tall Chief. And 
Others, some people think that this was an effort to sabotage their prayer, since Tall Chief was one who was supposed to write the prayer. Um, Seth Morley, though, he rejects suicide as an option, saying that, you know, someone who's going to kill himself is not going to waste their time unpacking the, the noser. So who's doing the killing? Now we got kind of a murder mystery aspect going on, and it fits into the narrative that some people in the group already believe, and that is that they're going to that they're subject to some kind of cruel experiment. And, and if someone gets in the way of that experiment, they'll be knocked off one at a time. So there's some kind of external threat to them. So that's all we have in chapter five. Um, in chapter six, uh, it's, it's again extending from this death of Ben Tallchief and the group, now it's, I guess it's 15 people, 14 people now, or maybe, no, it's 13 people now. They are just trying to decide what to do about leadership. Maybe they need to find some kind of way of having uh, a gestalt, even if it's an enforced one from, from the top. And maybe if it's just made up. So they decide to vote on who will be the leader. But there's a lot of anxiety over this, this leadership. And there's the difficulty of, of trying to vote. There's an acknowledged difficulty of voting for someone in this context. Um, Betty Joan Byrne, who is the the theologian of the group says, we can vote in a democratic way, but I think we must be careful. We mustn't give the leader too much power, and we should be able to recall him if at any time we're not satisfied with him. And we can vote him out as a leader and elect someone else. But while he's a leader, we should obey him. We don't want to be too weak either. If he's too weak, we'll be just like we are now, a mere collection of individuals who can, can function together even in the face of death. So we're once again back to this theme that they're a group of people who are not going to be able to function together in any meaningful way. So um, eventually Glenn Belsnor is voted the, the leader by three votes. And there was one person who wasn't there to vote, but since he won by three, it doesn't really matter. I'm oh, sorry, Betty Jo Byrne was a linguist. The Maggie Walsh is a theologian because she has her kind of moment to shine in this chapter as well, where she goes into... The, their Bible, which is a book by a guy named Spektowski, who sort of figured out this whole true nature of God. And he talks about the, the nature of the intercessor. So it's, it's kind of fun. I, I don't know. I think Dick's certainly having, you know, enjoying working out this theology for us. I don't know how much important it is to the story, um, but it's, it's interesting. We definitely see his religious turn. We've been seeing it for a while, actually, um, since the late 1960s. Um, but here's what uh, some of the background on the intercessor is, this kind of sustaining deity. By his appearance in history and creation, the intercessor offered himself as a sacrifice by which the curse could be partially nullified. Satisfies as to the redemption of his creation by this manifestation of himself, this signal of his great but partial victory, the deity died and then re-manifested himself to indicate that he had overcome the curse, and hence death, and having gone back, having done this, moved up through the concentric circles back to God himself. The next and last period is the day of audit, in which the heavens will roll back like a scroll in each living thing, and hence all creatures, both sentient man and man-like non-terrestrial organisms, will be reconciled with the original deity, from whom's unity and being everything has come, with the possible exception of the form destroyer. And th so that's uh, her dissertation on the nature of the intercessor and obviously he's getting this partially from christianity as well so it's not just sort of hindu theology that's motivating dick and putting this together I, again i really doubt the originality of any of this theology i think it's all drawn from world religions and he's just picking and choosing so anyways the doctor come fraser the doctor his name is fraser he he comes in and 
he finds out that Glenn's been voted at the Glenn the electrician has been voted as the leader. Doesn't really matter because he was going to support him anyways. And he reveals that the cause of death of Ben Tolchief was an allergic reaction of sorts. And it, there's a certain kind of plant that almost killed, I think, Susie Small, the secretary in the group, the hot secretary with mental problems. Um, kind of a Philip Dick trope by now. Uh, she almost died earlier on of a similar allergic reaction. So, um, however, others point out the danger of rejecting the thesis that this was caused by foul play. Just because it was caused by an allergic reaction doesn't mean he wasn't murdered. And if they don't, if they're not vigilant, and if they are being experimented on, others will, will die. Um, and once again, we're reminded that we are in a mob. One of the characters points out that they're essentially living in a mob mentality, despite having a leader. And there's this general fear of, of fate and a general feeling of doom throughout the entire group uh, with the realization that there's not a clear explanation of, of Ben Talchi's death and anything, you know, could still be on the table. Okay, so the next scene in the novel is Susie Smart, again, the hot secretary, uh, invites Seth to her home and they have various conversations. She asks him what, her, what his thoughts about Carl Jung are and the concept of the collective subconscious, which she's very interested in. Uh, he, she says, Jung believed that our attitudes towards our actual mothers and fathers are because they embody certain male and female archetypes. For instance, there's a great bad earth father and a good earth father and the destroying earth father and so forth. The same with the woman. My mother was the bad earth mother and so all my psychic energy was turned towards my father. Um, and she tries to explain her own proclivities. She's a sex addict. She really comes off here as a bit borderline, like having a bit of a borderline personality disorder. Um, Dick talks a lot about mental illness, but he doesn't really identify too many of his characters with, or any that I know of, with, as borderline. But many of them come off as having borderline uh, tendencies. And, and Su Susie Smart's one of those. This, this woman who always has to have someone with her every night right and trying to trying to seduce people all the time um, very destructive relationships it's it's something that we see a lot in dick's novels and she's clearly trying to seduce him in this scene uh, she shows him this these like the creatures of this planet now one thing we learn over time in these chapters is that there's there's kind of creatures on the planet but they're all mechanical and many of them are printers so they'll make copies of things and Susan's, Susie Smart's actually trained one of these creatures, adopted it and trained it. And in, in it's like a little building. It's like a model of a building, which is a copy of the big building that they see in the outskirts of their settlement. So they look out and they see this building. They haven't really gone there yet, but there's a lot of these little individual copies of buildings, some of them quite small, even microscopic, throughout this, this universe. And there's these little creatures that... Glenn Belsner once dissected to show that they're basically mechanical devices. And she introduces these, these devices to, to Seth Morley. So we switch actually at this point to Susie, Smart, Susie Smart's uh, point of view, where she's in the act of trying to seduce Seth Morley, actually taking off her clothes. And, and we get a little internal monologue that suggests that she's just obsessed with the hunt of, of a man almost. Like a, that's the actual language we get in the novel. I'm not obsessive, she said, as she removed the last of her clothing. Now she tore at the buttons of his shirt, a button ripped loose, rolled like a little wheel from the bed and onto the floor. 
At that, she laughed. She felt very good. This part always excited her. It was like the final stage of a hunt. In this case, the hunt for a big animal which smelled of sweat and of cigarette smoke and of agitated fear. How can he be afraid of me, she asked herself. But it was always that way. She had come to accept it. In fact, she had come to like it. Now, he tries to resist her sexual advances. He is a married man, of course. And in the middle of all this, Mary Morley intervenes. She comes in and she's, of course, trying to, she sees what's going on and she's, of course, upset. And while she intervenes, she's almost killed by this tamed creature, electronic creature, one of these little buildings that Susan, Susie Smart has trained and tamed. And she shoots at, at, at Mary Morley. She claims it was just because she intervened. She jumped in and was aggressive and, and she... She doesn't know why it, it shot at her. Other people doubt whether, you know, basically this thing would only shoot at Mary Morley if it was trained to or told to. Uh, now, no one dies, though. But we see here that Susie is still very desperate for companionship um, after Seth and Mary, Mary leave. They do have one brief conversation on their way out, and that is uh, that Susie has... has seen what's written on the, the building, the building that is on the outskirts of the settlement. And what's written on the building, according to her, what it says over the entrance is whippery. Oh, I think it's the little one that she has. It actually has uh, some writing over the building. It's called whippery. And this is supposed to be a model of the building that's, that's out there. This point of, of what's, what the building is labeled as is going to come up in a later chapter. But we'll have to get to that in the next, in the next episode. So anyways, that's chapter six, mostly the fallout from Ben Chief's death, growing anxiety over their status as a, a loose mixture of people, all with different anxieties and tensions. And then we see one of these anxieties and tensions in actual practice in Susie, Suzanne Smart's effort to seduce Smith Morley, her view of other of men primarily as t objects to be hunted almost and seduced. And her, her anxiety or hostility towards Mary Morley, the wife of her, of the man she's interested in. So um, that's chapter six. Um, in chapter seven, well, this picks up right after this with Glenn Blesnor explaining to Seth Morley that, you know, if this thing shot at Mary, it's because it was programmed to, it was trained to by, by Suzanne. And Seth begins to lose it at this point, accusing everyone here of being essentially uh, insane and, and having some kind of mental illness and thinking the whole situation they're in is quite dangerous. Whether there's conspiracy against them or not, they're, they're all have this kind of this hostility. They're, they're all basically insane is what he accuses them of. Um, Belsnor then goes into a very, very interesting conversation about his motivations. And it's one of the most important conversations in the novel. And it falls about, not quite halfway through, but it, almost halfway into the story. Uh, he first introduces one, another one of the indigenous creatures of, of the planet, one of these printers. They're called Tenches. And he shows this pen he has, which has been printed. And, and they don't last very long. They essentially they decay after a while, but they can print these things. We've seen this before in a Philip Dick story called Pay for Printer, um, in which you have these printers who can make things, but they wear out and they decay, and the things they make aren't permanent, but it's, it's kind of like the disposable consumer good we're, we're introduced to here. So, just, but despite decaying, you know, you just have another one printed, 
right? And so these tents, tench, tanks, T-E-N-C-H, tenches are what can do this printing, and that's where they get a lot of the stuff that they, they use. Um, but Belsnor suggests that the real commonality is not mental illness or insanity or, or the things that Seth is heading towards, but rather the real commonality is that they're all failures, they're all losers of sorts, and they're all seeking some meaning in life. So again, we're back to the themes of Galactic Pod Healer about how can we find meaning in life. Quote, this is Belsner just talking to Seth. He says, I've been thinking about your thoughts of the whole bunch of us. In a way, you're right. There's something the matter with each of us, but not what you think. The thing that we have in common is that we're failures. Take Tall Chief. Couldn't you tell he's a wino? And Susie, all she can think about is sexual conquests. I can make a guess about you too. You're overweight. Obviously, you eat too much. Do you live to eat morally? Or have you never asked yourself that? Babel is a hypochondriac. Betty Jo Byrne is compulsive pill taker and her life is in those plastic bottles. That kid, Tony Dunkelwitz, he lives for his mystical insights, his schizophrenic trances, which both Babel and Frazier call cataconic super. Maggie here, she lives in an illusionary world of prayer and fasting, doing service to a deity which isn't interested in her. Have you ever seen the intercessor, Maggie? She shook her head no. And then he goes on and talks about his desire to be an inventor. He's in the electronics industry and he wants to invent things. But he, he complains that, quote, I have never invented anything. Everything developed during the last two centuries has come from a composite lab where hundreds, even thousands of research workers work. There's no such thing as an inventor in this century. Maybe I just like to play private games with electronic components. Anyway, I enjoy it. I get most, if not all, of my pleasure in this world from creating circuits that ultimately do nothing. I want to contribute something. I don't want to be just like a consumer like the rest of you. We live in a world created and manufactured from the results of the works of millions of men, most of them dead, virtually none of them known or given any credit. I don't care if I'm known for what I create. All I care about is having it been worthwhile and useful with people that are able to depend on it as something they take for granted in their lives, like the safety pin. Who knows who created that? But everything in the goddamn galaxy makes use of safety pins." End quote. So that is a very important theme, right? It's, again, very much where Joseph Fern writing Galactic Podhuler was, that he just wanted to be, be useful. And ultimately, the, the conclusion of that novel is try to be creative. Whether a gestalt or individual, try to be creative. And that's what uh, Belsner is, is desiring here. And he can't find it, though. And he's not finding it on Delmont. Oh, for sure. Um, of course, we get another te tease here about Tony Dokelwitz, who's He's like the photographer and soil expert. He's always talked about as the kid, so I don't quite know his age, but he, I guess he's younger. Um, but he had to have a job. As I talked about in the last episode, this, none of this is real, right? This is all a false reality that they're, they're stuck in. So they had to give him some kind of job on Del Marco in the delusion. But he's got these, he spends a lot of his time in these schizophrenic trances, seeing the divine. So what we have here is the colony is really surrounded by these, these, these artificial devices, right? And they're all engaged in this process of printing and decay. So what the, the tench, which can make things, make the pens that decay, that's the situation all around them. And Belsnor is able to explain a little bit of the, more of this to, to Seth Morley, how even like the building that they see has all these little copies, like the one Susan Smart had in her house, but also these little even microscopic copies of of these buildings. Uh, he shows him, he shows Seth one of the microscope, one of these mini buildings, and he's able to find in there that there's actually written on one of these, made on Terra, 3T 
OA2R. So this kind of proves that they're actually in an experiment, that the original theory that they're not, you know, actual colonists with a mission, that they're just targets of some weird experiment is sort of confirmed here. Now, the next scene, uh, Babel, the doctor, of course, and, and Seth discuss the experience Seth reported early, that happened in Chapter 2, where he met the walker on Earth and got help about the noser. And Babel tries to explain that maybe you didn't see the walker on Earth. Maybe you didn't see God. Maybe there's another explanation for it. And while they're having this conversation, another guy shows up, a guy named Ned Russell. He's like the 15th guy. So I guess now with one guy dead, it's the, the, the 14th guy. Um, and he's the economist. They weren't expecting him, but he comes anyways. Um, so the next scene is Susie and Suzanne and Tony. And Tony's in some kind of trance, which he commonly is in, seeing essentially God. And she's trying to seduce him, as always, and flirting with him. But Tony explains that he sees the form destroyer, and he sees the form destroyer not as kind of a a fourth, like kind of an, an evil force, but actually part of the trinity of God. So it's not a trinity. It's not the manufacturer, the intercessor, and the walker on earth. The traditional trinity and the form destroyer is like outside of that. He says the form destroyer is part of God and a full part of God. He claims to be a prophet, like in the tradition of Moses and, and others. Susie, though, is just here trying to sleep with him. But she says, she does play along a little bit. She says, if you're a prophet, why don't you do a miracle for me? And he performs a miracle for her. He turns a piece of bread into stone. He does the inverse of Jesus's miracle. Um, later on, Tony leaves and she's frustrated once again in her efforts to sleep with one of the members of the expedition. And while she's there, the stone vanishes and she dies. So very in a scene that's very reminiscent of what we've seen in chapter six with no, chapter five. Yeah, chapter five with Ben Tallchief's death, Suzanne Smart uh, dies, just sort of vanishes away. So this leads us to chapter eight, where the characters now have to deal with another death, a death that proves that they are in danger, a death that proves that one death could be an accident, two deaths is a conspiracy. There's some force out there trying to kill them, either each other or this conspiracy they're a part of. So Seth Morley says we need to get answers, and the only place to get answers is going to be that building. That's the only place we could possibly go. And so Seth Morley says let's arrange an expedition to go to the building and check it out. At first, Glenn Belsner is a little skeptical of this, but eventually he agrees to let a group of them go. Uh, he insists that they don't go armed, though, because he's afraid that there is this antagonism between people and that they might just kill each other. So it ends up about half of the group goes on this expedition. Um, so I guess there's 13 left, so it's seven. Uh, seven of the 13 go. It's Seth, Seth Morley, Frazier, the psychologist, Thug, who's like uh, the working class guy. He's in the thermoplastics. Uh, BJ Berm, the linguist. Maggie Walsh, the theologian. Mary goes with her husband. So it's Mary and Seth. There are two of them. And then the new guy, Russell, he goes along too. So these seven people plan this expedition to go see the building. And they pretty much immediately set off for this. While they're walking, they have various conversations, some about theology, even they talk about Kant a little bit. Dick can't resist throwing in uh, side conversations about the, uh, philosophy or theology, of course. But 
he Russell begins to think that maybe the building that they see is a sort of illusion and that the real building is somewhere else. And he explains how this has been done in various places. He's an economist, so he knows something about uh, factories. And sometimes they will do this to hide a factory from the enemy in war times and stuff. So uh, he thinks that maybe the factory, the building they see on the plateau may not be there, that this is just an illusion and the real one could be anywhere else. But he directs them using his knowledge to a different place. And he, th he thinks this is an interplanet trick. So he's on board with them being kind of subjects of an experiment, that theory. So eventually they cross a river and they get to the building. And that's, that's what happens in chapter eight is essentially they, this expedition goes off to find the building and they locate it. And that's it, that uh, takes us through chapter eight. So that's all I'm gonna talk about in A Maze of Death in this episode. Uh, if you want to find out what they find at the building and what happens to the people who stay behind at the base, the other six who, who stay behind, you'll just have to wait for the next, next episode. But in the meantime, if you have any thoughts about the theology of this novel, about the aspects of mental illness that Dick plays with in this story, um, you know, let me know if you have any feelings about this novel overall. Please uh, do not hesitate to leave your comments below or send me an email at 100pagescast at gmail.com. And if there's anything I forgot, if there's any important points that I forgot or misinterpreted, let me know what you think about that as well. So I'll see you next time with part three of my review of A Maze of Death. That will cover chapters nine through 12. So uh, it'll be a short, uh, it's a short section, I think only 30 pages or so in those four chapters. But um, I think there's a lot to talk about in that, that episode, despite it being short. So um, as always, thanks for listening and see you next time. To feel these changes happening in me.